I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Today I'm talking to Doug and Jennifer Lambert from Williamsburg, Virginia. Doug and Jennifer were missionaries in Argentina, Mexico, and then returned to the U.S. to lead churches in Tallahassee, Florida, Nashville, Tennessee, Baltimore, Maryland, and Cincinnati, Ohio. They talk about the secrets to making a career out of ministry, how to raise solid kids who love God, how to tackle pride and lead with humility, how Doug fasted for 40 days and saw four men become Christians as a result, how they faced Jennifer's diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Today I'm talking to Doug and Jennifer Lambert from Williamsburg, Virginia. And Doug and Jennifer have had a full career in the ministry, uh, both domestically and overseas in Buenos Aires and Mexico. And they're going to share about their lives and their missionary journey up until now. Most recently, Jennifer is a cancer survivor of pancreatic cancer. I look forward to talking to her about that. Doug and Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. How did you guys become Christians? Well, I'll go ahead and go first. My, uh, my story is a lot longer and a lot more complicated. <laughs> I actually, um, ironically, while I was a freshman at William & Mary here in Waynesburg, I had started dating a girl in the uh, mainline church of christ so i kind of dated my way into the church started attending here um got dunked in water when i was 18 years old um after i graduated moved to move back to ohio to go to law school at ohio state university and while i was there i got connected with the crossroads campus ministry and that's where i was really introduced to you know spiritual relationships commitment uh, really what it meant to, to live a committed life for God. And so I got tied into the uh, the church there and the ministry there. Uh, but because I'd been, I, I dunked in the water and just thought I was a Christian, including myself. Uh, and finally, after I moved to Boston in 1987 for further ministry training, I kind of connected the dots that I'd had a repentance-free, lordship-free, discipleship-free baptism back in 1974. And so I was actually baptized as a disciple in Boston in 1987. Wow. Okay. So, okay. That must've taken a lot of humility there to, to make that decision. Yeah. I was actually in the ministry at the time, getting ready to go on the mission team about ready to date Jennifer. Um, and honestly, I thought all those things would get put on hold. Uh, but for me, there was nothing more important than getting right with God. I'm like, look, if I have to come out of the ministry, if we don't date, if I don't go to the mission team, having my sins forgiven, being right with God is more important than anything else. And so that that's really what it was for me. I'm like, I want to be right with God. And I knew I wasn't. I mean, it was funny. No one actually ever questioned my conversion, but I knew biblically I had not done what the Bible teaches. So 
that was it was very clear for me. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. How about you, Jennifer? Uh, yeah, mine, as Doug said, mine's a little bit uh, simpler. <laughs> I, I grew up attending a congregational church. I grew up in Connecticut. And uh, I haven't found many congregational churches outside of New England. Um, but I knew nothing about the Bible. And I rarely prayed. We didn't say grace at dinner or anything like that. In fact, as a young child, I thought church was closed in the summer because we never went because there weren't children's classes at the congregational church in the summer. So we didn't go. Um, but so I went to Mount Holyoke College, which is in Massachusetts, a women's college. And I now know in hindsight, I see that really for a number of years, God was preparing my heart and, and tilling the soil because I just really had a sense something in my life was missing. Uh, being at a women's college, I thought, well, maybe it's a boyfriend who's missing, which is a bit challenging to find at a women's college. And so, um, but I just, I, I felt like now as I read the parable about the, um, you know, guy who stumbled upon a treasure in the field, I feel like that's how I was. So as part of my curriculum, as part of my experience at Mount Holyoke, um, I was taking a semester away and I went to Boston University uh, to do a special semester program they had in American studies. And uh, so that was January of 1980. I was in the middle of my junior year and I got on campus in a dorm, the very beginning of that semester. And Joyce, now Arthur, uh, lived across the hall from me with Carolyn, now Stanfield, and they had just had a Bible talk meeting and Chris Fuquay was in that Bible talk at that time. She wasn't married then either. And so she just said, hey, have you met your neighbors? And I walked over and uh, met the disciples and they, you know, they, I just was struck at just how friendly they were and that they'd been talking about doing a Bible study. And it was intriguing to me that women my age could find the Bible is something you would read together and, and practical. So I went to church, immediately realized if what this guy is saying is true, I'm in trouble. <laughs> and uh, so wide open, studied the Bible, got baptized February 20th, 1980 in Boston. And then I ended up not like the guy in the field. I didn't quite sell everything I had, but I did transfer and finished my last year at Boston University which raised the eyebrows of my parents a little bit because my mother had graduated from Mount Holyoke. And uh, here I was transferring in my senior year to Boston University because of a church. Wow. <laughs> but they, they were supportive. And uh, so I was in Boston. Wow. Okay. So then how did you guys get together? I'll let Jennifer uh, share that. Very cool. So we both had had a number of dating relationships um, and Doug ended up coming to Boston in 2000, and, and where are we? 1986, a group came over from Ohio to Boston. He was in the ministry. By then I'd been a disciple about seven years. And so Martin Bentley match made us. I was sitting next to Martin Bentley on January 3rd. The reason I remember that so well is that's my birthday. Uh, January 3rd, 1987. I was sitting next to Martin and he says, hey, are there any brothers you're interested in? And 
I'd been through a few dating relationships and I was just like, I would just, you know, a really great spiritual brother. So he starts telling me about Doug. And uh, meanwhile, that same night, he tells Doug about me. And uh, so a few weeks later, there was a singles event. Doug at that time was the leader of the singles for all of the Boston church. Boston at that time had about 3000 people and uh, he was leading singles. So we, I subtly had someone introduce me to him at that singles event. And then he, he heard my name and it kind of rang a bell like, oh, okay, this is the one Martin was telling me about. Um, so then he, and that actually happened to be his birthday. So his birthday is two weeks after mine. And then he called me to ask for a date. And the first Saturday we both had was Valentine's Day. So we heard about each other on my birthday, met on his birthday, and our first date was Valentine's Day of 1987. And we were both very happy about that first date. Um, I'll add. Yes. After that first date, I went home and told my roommates that I just went out with the woman that I was going to marry. And then I, <laughs> I knew it. I was like, she's the one. Yeah. So. But he's so spiritual that about a month later, he got asked to go on the mission team to Argentina. Wow. Of course, this is pre-email, pre-cell phones, pre-anything. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's really far from Boston. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the time, I was actually working for Bob and Pat Gimple. I was an administrative assistant for their company, uh, International Health Services. That was before, you know, they did, did Hope. And... Um, so Doug had already signed on for the, for the mission team and they knew that I was interested, you know, potentially in ministry and they knew that I was interested in, in mission team. And so Doug got the go ahead and we started dating. And three days after we started dating, Pat called me into her office because I was at work and she said, Jennifer, we've talked and we've decided you can go on the mission team it's gonna make me cry <laughs> to Argentina as an intern. And that was my ministry start. Well, yeah. yeah, so we we actually almost our entire dating relationship was in Argentina. So uh we 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 I think we were dating for all of like what a month basically <laughs> before we left to go uh, to Argentina. Well, I always look back and I think about her parents going, Okay, you've known this guy since January, you've been dating a month and you're going to uh, the other side of the world. But I was 28 yeah. and he was 31. Yeah. We so I, exactly think young, were, yeah, yeah. I think they were happy. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> I found somebody. So pretty much our whole day relationship was Argentina. We got engaged there. Uh, we got married there. We were actually the first wedding in the church and we really wanted to get married in Buenos Aires. We feel like that was a real statement that that's our home. This is our church. And so our immediate family, um, her parents and siblings, my parents, my grandmother came down to our wedding. Mm -hmm. um, we really wanted to get married in Argentina. And uh, and that's where our lives, really, our lives together yeah. began in Latin America. So, And that was a very small church. Yeah. Uh, there were maybe 30 or 40 when we got married yeah, yeah, yeah. in the church because we'd gone down as a group of 13. Yeah. So there was me and my the three sisters that I lived with, Doug and the two brothers he lived with, and then three married couples. Yeah, that yeah. was the mission team. Yeah. And the team what was really inspiring about the singles. Um, you know, I graduated from law school 
my two roommates were both Harvard graduates. One guy was pre-med. He put his, he basically put his career on hold to go on the mission team. Then later on came back and went to med school and is a doctor now. Um, one of Jennifer's roommates had been a professor of pharmacology at, at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy. Um, so it was, it was people who really had incredible careers and opportunities, but put really in some ways put their lives on hold to help start a church in another part of the world. And, and as a small church, uh, you know, with us being the only dating couple, and there were three sisters and two other brothers. So every week, you know, Pedro and Dave would go out with, you know, each take one yeah. of the other three sisters out. And then the other sister would usually babysit for one or all of the married yeah. couples so they could go out. Right. And the other thing we did is the brothers every week had uh, any guy visitors over to their house for lunch. And we had any women visitors over to the single women's house for lunch. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you guys got married when? 19, same year, 1987? 1988. Yeah, 1988. Yeah. Okay. What's your anniversary? When is it? December 10th, 1988. So we dated a year and a half. Okay. December. And then got married. Wow. So I like to say I got married in my 20s. But three weeks later, I turned 30. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, so can you, so first of all, you guys are there, you go meet in Boston, you go to Buenos Aires on a mission team. Share just a, where have you gone since that time? Can you give give me an overview of your ministry career? Yeah, yeah I actually, I started out of the ministry in, in 1981 at Columbus. I actually graduated law school and passed the bar and then um, got hired as a, as a team minister. And so I, uh, I was in the ministry first with teens and then with singles, then moved to Boston, like we said, in 1986. It was there for a year. And then we started the ministry together in Argentina in, in 1987. We spent three years there on the mission team with the church. And then uh, after that, we were asked to, to move to Puebla, Mexico. Uh, it's a city of about six million people. Uh, couple hours outside of Mexico City. So we moved there. We spent a year there. And then we uh, were asked to move to Guadalajara, Mexico. We spent a year in Guadalajara. And then we uh, moved to Mexico City and spent just about a year leading a region in the Mexico City Church. In 1993, they were bringing back a lot of the missionaries uh, from Latin America to the U.S. And so we came back to lead the church in Tallahassee, Florida. And we were there for five years. And then uh, we're asked to moved to lead the church in Nashville, Tennessee, and we were there from 1998 to about 2006, so just about seven years. Um, after that, we moved to uh, Baltimore, Maryland uh, with Doug and Joyce Arthur, first to really work with the teens and the families there. And then after about a year when Doug and Joyce moved to Boston, we took over Baltimore, uh, led the Baltimore church up to about, uh, I guess about 2012. And then uh, then basically we moved to Cincinnati really just to kind of help out, not just with the churches today, but, but all the churches in the Ohio Valley, which were uh, Ohio, Kentucky, and uh, West Virginia. And then, uh, and then we were there until we retired uh, just uh, but about a month ago. Yeah. Right? yeah. So we were nine and nine and a half years in Cincinnati. Yeah. And that was our last spot. Right. And as you know, cause you interviewed our son, Will, uh, he was born when we were in Argentina and then our daughter, Victoria, who's now Victoria Henry, was born in uh, 
Mexico City. Yeah. Wow. Okay. You guys have been all over the place. That's <laughs> yes. crazy. Yeah. Okay. One of the things that you shared earlier, Doug, is that you you hit a low point in in Buenos Aires back in '87, and there were some challenges you were facing. And then you fasted for four, did a forty day fast, and then you shared about some miracles happened. Can you just uh, you know recount what was going on there and that, about that story? Yeah, you know, um, it's very clear in hindsight what was going on. It wasn't clear at the time, but you know go down on the missions team and, you know, you're going to, you're going to go on a mission team. It's going to, you're going to have this great impact and uh, all this stuff. Well, we get there and um, I didn't, I didn't know any Spanish when, when we went, uh, Jennifer knew some. So the whole plan was, Hey, we'll learn Spanish. We'll reach out. Well, after we'd been there for a while, um, my Spanish just wasn't making strides. I mean, I, I get around Spanish, but the real breakthrough where, you know, where I really could get to the point where I could study the Bible, people, disciple people, really read people's hearts. It wasn't happening. And, uh, you know, I remember Mark Bailey talked to me, said, you know, you know, some of the missionaries are going to be going back. And, you know, if you, if you can't really function in the language here in terms of evangelism, discipling, you know, I don't know, I don't know if there's really a place. And it really hit me. And, and what really came out was it was, it was really all about my pride. Uh, I went down to thinking I was all that, you know, I've been in the ministry all this time. He's a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. I'm a smart guy. I have Spanish, you know, that's the language everybody takes in school because it's the easiest language to learn. And God just blocked it. It was the hand of God on my pride, humbling me. And, and I realized, you know, this, this is a key moment in my life. What, what, what's going to happen with the rest of my life? I really felt like this was about the rest of my life. Mm. It was a defining moment. And there were actually three of us, uh, two other brothers and I, that, that decided that we were going to fast for 40 days together, um, all for different character things. Um, for me, it was pride and, and selfishness and, uh, and all that. And so uh, we went, I think it was 28 days, with liquid only fast. And then the last 12 days was just fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why I look really thin in our wedding pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I look really thin, but God just, I mean, it was amazing. It changed my heart. Uh, all of a sudden Spanish just started coming easy. It was like, oh my gosh, uh, this huge breakthrough. And every day, uh, instead of eating, I would go out to this park to pray and to reach out to people. And during that 40 days, I met and baptized four guys, um, during that and during that 40 day was period was that during that 40 day period and a 40 day fast yeah wow. so here i am you know I, I i can't learn the language uh I, i'm not building great relationships and all of a sudden i humble myself you know it's, it's pretty amazing humble yourself before the lord and he will lift you up and all of a sudden i'm meeting people i'm baptized and i'm learning the language we get married. Uh, I actually baptized a guy the Thursday night before our wedding on Saturday. And so it was a great lesson. And I would love to say I've never had to learn that lesson again. Unfortunately, <laughs> that lesson has been repeated many times in my life where I've had to get humbled by God all over again, because once again, I thought I was all that and God had to remind me that I'm not. So yeah, I, I would love to say learn that lesson forever. Didn't happen. Wow. <laughs> so. Pretty, pretty impressive though, to get, 
get a law degree, and then you know, there I can see why that would be a temptation. You're a very gifted person. Now, you had some pretty, like, pretty radical, like, guidelines to help you to learn Spanish. Can you talk a little bit about what you were doing to to accelerate your learning? Yeah, when we got there, um, and it was funny. I'll never forget t- telling Martin Bentley because he asked, you know, if I would go on the mission team, and I and I immediately said, yeah. I said, but I don't speak Spanish. And he said, well, we're leaving in a month and we'll learn it when we get there. And, uh, and that was really it. Um, uh, we, we had a 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. no English rule. And so if you, wanted to, if you wanted to say something, you had to figure out how to say it in Spanish. And uh, the reason why I ended at 9 p.m. is like, if you really needed to say something, <laughs> you know, then you could, you could talk. Uh, we were in language school four days a week for three hours a day for uh, six months. For six months, and I actually continued after that uh, just on my own because I, I was, like I said, having trouble with my Spanish. But it was full immersion. We didn't speak English with each other, um, and it was it was it was hard line because we're like we've yeah. got to learn this. We're not here as tourists. We're because we really went. Our, our attitude was. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna spend the rest of our lives in Latin America. It was it was during the time of the one week challenge. We literally sold and gave away everything we owned, moved there with no plan of ever coming back. That's why we got married there. Our kids got dual citizenship there. We we were we were going to die in Latin America. That's really what we thought. Wow, wow. Okay, that was something that um, in our pre-interview that came up over and over again is humility and the importance of it. You shared about another time that. You faced a challenge, I believe, in Guadalajara. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, that uh, that was in 1991. So you, you, you think, gosh, Doug, you learned this huge lesson <laughs> back in back in the late 80s, and here you are again. We went to Puebla to lead the church, and uh, mm. first church we'd ever led. And I remember actually them telling us, "We we don't feel like you guys are totally ready, but we've got this dating couple that was leading the church, and they just broke up." And so we need to replace them. So they sent us in kind of like, you know, fill in the gap, fill in the gap couple and God bless it. In a year, the church grew from 30 to hundred. Our campus ministry grew from two to 50. It was incredible. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. We prayed like crazy. We relied on God. And I mean, the church just exploded. We had 17 baptisms in one month yeah. and wow. a church of about 40. Yeah. And wow. so, so after that, they then asked us, said, hey, the church of Guadalajara has not been doing well. Could you guys go to Guadalajara? And so we get to Guadalajara. I think the church is probably about 65 or something like that. And even though I never said it out loud, in my heart, I thought, I got this church leading thing down. You know, one church. <laughs> We've done it for a whole year. One church for a year. And I'm like, oh, I know how to do this. We're going to go in and we'll get things going and we'll crank it out and it'll go great. Um and, and, and it's funny, I mean, the church, I think, still grew from like 65 to about 95, but that there was, it was just, it was a different expectation back then. And, you know, churches were, were growing in amazing ways, but we weren't in a good place. And I, I think especially Jennifer wasn't in a good place spiritually. I knew it. I wasn't doing what I needed to do to, to take care of her and lead her. And so after a year, we got pulled back to Mexico City um, to lead a region. But, um, and, and, and again, I had to get humbled by God and learn that uh, I need to rely on God and not on my experience and my one year of great success in leading a church. So, And I want to share, too, in the year we were in Guadalajara, William was one, you know, one and a half, two. 
and he turned two in the year we were in Guadalajara. I had a miscarriage there as well. And uh, yeah, I was not doing well. And I, but I think Doug's sort of thinking, and he's humble enough to say it was pride, but you know, most of our ministry career, once we started leading churches, we've been discipled long distance. And I think his heart was, I don't want to be a nuisance to my discipler. You know, I want to bring good news. I want to be positive. So basically he would, he was not lying at all, but he was only sharing positive things. And he wasn't really saying, Hey, Jennifer's really having a tough time, you know, with this miscarriage and taking care of a two-year-old. And um, so he was just sharing positive things. And, but what ended up happening is he wasn't getting giving the full picture right. of what was going on. Yeah, I, I, I'll never forget the time uh, the brother who was overseeing Mexico and discipling me after we came in, he said, you know, he goes, bro, he goes, because you didn't give me an accurate picture of what was going on in the church, I was discipling a situation that didn't exist. And your church didn't get the help they needed because you didn't give me a, a complete picture. And that really, that stuck with me. And from that point forward, I'm like, I don't care what's going on in my church. I'm always going to let people know exactly where things are at so that my church can get the help right. um, that it needs. So That's impressive. Okay. So if a person, if a person is struggling with their pride, what, what advice would you give them? I mean, what, it sounds like, you sound like victory stories where God really broke through and, you're humble enough to admit it now, but we all struggle with this this issue, especially as we get older and more experienced. We've we've put a lot of techniques under our belt. I certainly feel that way. It's like you know, I love to learn new ways and techniques, but it's so tempting to rely on the technique rather than on God. So, what advice would you give to a person who's who's in this situation? I think the first thing to realize is we we, we tend to think that. God has like one approach to, to dealing with our pride. Um, for me, God used not being able to learn Spanish. And I think to realize if there's an area in our life where, where it's just blocked, sometimes it never occurs to us that maybe God is trying to get our attention. I, I do believe if, if for those, those people in the ministry, one of the biggest ways God gets our attention is by just blocking things in the ministry. Right. Like, yeah. why, why are things not going well? Because, I mean, unfortunately, uh, that's the area we tend to, like, focus on a lot of times measure our success. And so sometimes it's like, why is nothing happening in my church? Why is this? And there will be, be other reasons, but I think sometimes we're, we're hesitant to go, well, maybe it's my pride. Um, it could be our marriage. It could be stuff going on with our kids. It could be our finances. Um it could be other areas of life. And I think we got to realize God is a very creative God. He has all these, he has unlimited resources to gain our attention because what he wants, he wants us to rely on him. Right. And in every area of our life. And um, God has done it in many ways. He's, he's incredibly creative. Um, yeah. But I think step back and just go, okay, maybe my frustration with how something's going in a particular area of my life, maybe rather than being frustrated, I need to see this as God's love. And he's like, I'm trying to draw you back yeah. to this childlike dependence on me that you had when you started out your Christian life. And many times you had when you started out the ministry where, right. where you were like, I don't know what I'm doing. 
uh, I need to rely on God. You, you prayed like crazy. You fasted. You read the Bible. You got all kinds of input and advice. And maybe God is like trying to get your attention again, saying, that's what you need to get back to. And, you know, I, I do believe the Bible says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. And so if we feel like I'm not being lifted up, maybe we go, okay, there's a biblical principle here that says why I'm not being lifted up. And maybe it's because I've not humbled myself before God. Yeah. So that, that's the advice I would share. Yeah. And I think, I think also the, you know, as Doug said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Yeah. And I think as a leader, and especially as a church leader, um, we have to be confident. I mean, nobody wants somebody getting up in the pulpit and saying, Oh, I hope you've had a better week than I have. <laughs> you know, I hope you're doing better than I am, but let's read a scripture. I mean, you, I mean, Doug's extremely confident, extremely competent, right? But those are very different from pride, yeah. That's the sin of pride, and so I think that's where. We honestly, and because it's hard to see sometimes, you know, that take the plank out of your own eye before you go work on somebody else. I think it's something to really pray about. And I think both of us pray a lot to be humble. You know, God, please help us be humble. Help us see what you want us to see. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's great, great practicals there. Jennifer, let's just change the subject. You were diagnosed sure. with pancreatic cancer in 2019. Yep. I want to know how do you how do you trust God when you've been handed such bad news? I mean, my father died from pancreatic cancer, and I remember when that when that happened. I mean, he turned yellow. He, you know, mm -hmm. it was it was terrible and incredibly painful. And he, you know, within about a year, he passed away. Um, but I mean, the, pancreatic cancer is one of the worst. I mean, it, it's yeah. not only deadly, but it's incredibly painful from what, from what I've heard and from what I've experienced through my father passing away. How'd you handle that? How do you, how do you trust God in that situation? Well, I think, um, you know, maybe it's my, <laughs> God put a, a blind over me or something because I've been a healthy person, very healthy person my whole life. I mean, the only time I'd been in the hospital, you know, overnight was once in college for a pilonidal cyst surgery and then having my babies. I mean, that was it. So there's zero history of cancer of any kind anywhere in my family. So I, um, you know, we were actually in Italy in September of 2019 and I had just, I just started noticing, wow, I'm just getting really fatigued. Boy, I guess I'm not exercising enough. My gut was kind of off. My skin was really itchy, but I thought, okay, dry climate, different food. I just wasn't really super concerned about it. Then we went to Madrid. It was Weston Lambert's first birthday mm -hmm. and uh, Will and Kristen were there. So we went to Madrid and the two days after we got to Madrid, we were uh, at church and uh, a brother who's an American actually came up to me and said, Jennifer, you are yellow. Your eyes are yellow and you need to go to the hospital now. 
said, I was in the Navy. If somebody looked like you on ship, they got them off immediately. Mm-hmm. And d- neither of us had noticed the jaundice. Yeah. It had like just started, but, but I went to the hospital and, uh, and I was indeed jaundiced. My bilirubin was super high. They said, okay, we're admitting you and we'll figure out what's going on. And they did an ultrasound and said, okay, something's pressing on your bile duct. You know, could be a gallstone, could be something else. Of course, me, again, because I've been such a healthy person my whole life, I'm like, okay, it's a gallstone. You know, I know people that have had their gallbladder removed, whatever. So I get admitted. And then the care we had in Madrid was phenomenal. And of course, we're both fluent in Spanish. So that was no problem being in a hospital in Madrid. And so they did a more in-depth ultrasound. It's like, okay, it's definitely a tumor pressing on your bile duct and it's in your pancreas. And I still was not computing that it was cancer, even though the doctor said, you know, it's a tumor, probably cancer. Doug took it really hard at that point. I'm still thinking, oh, for sure it's benign. Because again, zero history of cancer, super healthy. And uh, I still, so I ended up being in the hospital five days because in Madrid, they had to put stints in to get the bile going. because of insurance, praise God, we got to fly home first class. Wow. Probably the only time ever in our lives. <laughs> yeah. But so that whole time, I mean, I just saw God. I mean, it was caught so early. Yeah. And we got back to um, Cincinnati, and I was a candidate for Whipple surgery, which only about 20% of people diagnosed with pancreatic cancer are even a candidate for the surgery. So I was able to have the surgery, had the surgery on October 3rd. It was a brutal surgery, was in the hospital a week, um, have a nine inch incision from that, uh, but it went well. Turns out the tumor was stage two. They took out 21 lymph nodes. They were all clear. Uh, then the oncologist we saw had, you know, she was very up on the latest research. She said the, the best outcome is if you follow up, even with a clear margins, if you follow up with chemo. So I followed up with chemo, a very intense chemo, um, had seven rounds of that, you know, lost half my hair, got down to 93 pounds. Oh my God. That was in some ways worse than the surgery. Uh, but here I am, you know, in September. Right coming up on three years, doing great. So I think I never, you know, Doug and I have talked about this. We never felt like, why me? I can't believe it. It's sort of like, why not me? I mean, that you know, the doctor in Madrid said, you didn't do anything wrong. It just happens. He's like, <laughs> he kind of said, everybody's gonna die of something. Often it's either heart disease, cancer, or, you know, Alzheimer's. And he said, you know, for you, cancer. I'm like, oh, oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> <Mr. Upbeat. laughs> right, Somehow right, yeah, I'm yeah. not feeling yeah. encouraged. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, too, like Jennifer said, uh, when we first heard it, I mean, it, like you, everybody I've ever known with pancreatic cancer, it's, it's just a death sentence. And yeah. so, yeah. Um, and even after, even after we met with a surgeon, you know, he said, hey, you know, we can do the surgery. He says, and if everything goes well, yeah. you'll, you'll probably have two to five years. That was the best case scenario. And so we, at that point, we realized, you know what, you know, um, best case scenario statistically is two to five years no. uh, if everything goes great. And, and we just had, you know, we just pray. We're like, you know what, 
um, there's, there's, there's no lose here. Yeah. Either, either she gets better and we have a long life together or she goes to heaven. Um, but for, for Jennifer, there's no bad outcome. Yeah. Um, and you know, and, and like she shared, you know, I, I told somebody, I said, I, Joe spent about 35 chapters trying to figure out why things happened to him. <laughs> yeah. And at the end, all God said was, I'm God, you're not, you have to just trust me. And, and we made our decision when yeah. we became disciples, we entrusted our lives to God mm-hmm. to do with it as he will. And if he gives us many, many years to give, that's great. And if he doesn't, we're okay with that yeah. um, because we belong to him and whatever he does with our lives, that's it. And, and, and our whole thing, I, you know, I told somebody, I said, we, the only why we ask ourselves is why would God love us? Mm-hmm. Why would God forgive us? Why would God save us? Why would God use us? Um, we, we deserve nothing from God and he's blessed our lives incredibly. And right. even during this whole process, we felt there were so many prayers that God answered. We, we actually lost track of it. Yeah. it. It was overwhelming. And we really believe that, that she is really a living representation for tens of thousands of disciples that prayed for her. And so yeah. we're, we're grateful for every day we have. We, yeah. we, we love it. We enjoy it. Um, and we, we want to, be appreciative for all that God's done for us. Yeah, it's it's definitely the prayers of the saints. Yeah, why I'm here. And Doug, I have to say, Doug has been the most incredible caregiver. I mean, really, he just, you know, went with me every single appointment. Was with me all the time. Just, you know, he'll talk more about how we were managing the church in Cincinnati. But um, just, yeah, I'm just incredibly grateful and. Uh, I went on disability almost immediately, you know, by, by December, I was yeah. approved for disability because I got very weak. That, and, uh, that was another amazing answer to prayer. That was incredible. We applied for social security disability for her at the beginning of November and Christmas Eve. Yeah. She got approved. We got the letter on December 24th. It was like about six weeks from the time we applied to the time she was approved, which is like unheard of. And it literally came December 24th. And we're like, oh my gosh, talk about an amazing Christmas, Christmas present. present. Yeah. And, uh, we, even though Doug's a lawyer and he had all the paperwork and knew what to do, he, we went to a lawyer and the lawyer said, you know, Jennifer, I'm happy for you that your tumor was only stage two. He said, if it was stage three or four, you'd be approved in a heartbeat. He said, pancreatic cancer is on the compassion list because usually people don't make it. So he said, if it was three or four, you'd be approved in a heartbeat. He says, with it being stage two, we'll see. He was blown away. The lawyer was blown away that in six weeks, it was was approved. Wow. Okay. I just, I mean, like you said, pancreatic cancer is, is in my mind, that's a death sentence. Um, You know, that you're going to die. And Jennifer, you look great. I mean, just looking at you, you go, well, you, you don't look like a cancer survivor at all. You look fantastic. I mean, you're so bright and, and beautiful and you look fantastic. Did, what kind of thoughts did you have, though, at the thought of, hey, I could go. This, this, I might be meeting God here real soon. Any, any thoughts? Any? Well, I think it's more, it was more, I know my, kids would miss me. Doug would miss me. It's like he said, 
I'd be in heaven. Right. <laughs> that's, right. that's pretty awesome. Right. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I, right away, I started praying, God, I want to see our grandkids, which are, we're up to three now, three mm. grandsons. Um, I'd, I'd like to see them all get baptized. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm praying to, to be around to get to see them be baptized. I'd love, I'd love to be around that long. Um, but honestly, we had an experience in Cincinnati, a brother, um, Pete McCreary, uh, in his 50s, awesome brother, healthy, riding home on his motorcycle from work, hit by a car, killed instantly. I mean, we, we, and I think that for Cincinnati and for me and for us, Doug knew Pete for almost 40 years. Yeah. Um, we don't know. We really don't. We walk around it. We don't wake up every day saying, gee, I could die today. But the truth is, I could die today. Yeah. I mean, every single one of us, we do not know how long we have. And Doug and I were talking about this the other day that God just has never decided to give us that information. Of <laughs> how long we're, you know, we're going to have. We, you know, we can look at statistics. We can try to be as healthy as we can. We can look both ways we can but we really truly yeah. don't know and right. so i think you know maybe this has just helped me even more so be sure i'm ready to go at any time right. um you know there'd be times where someone would say in a sermon hey if there's anything on your heart or if there's anything you haven't forgiven if there's someone you haven't forgiven if there's something you haven't said that you mm -hmm. feel you need to before we left Cincinnati, there were two conversations I felt I needed to have, even though they'd been about situations that had happened years before. And I did that. I had both those conversations. So right now, there, there's nothing on my heart. There's no relationship. I mean, I try to make sure I tell my kids and Doug every day I love them. I try to give my best in every conversation because we... None of us knows. Right. That's right. You know, That's right. None of us knows. It must give you a great, uh, I guess, a fresh look for every day in retirement. Just kind of a, yeah. a second chance, so to speak. Right. You know, just going forward. What's the prognosis for your, your cancer going forward? What's the doctor told you? I mean, right now I've had, I've lost track. It's eight or nine clear scans. You know, right now I'm on a every six month uh, scan, uh, schedule so we already have a new oncologist here and i'll go in september for another scan i just had a scan a month ago it's all clear every single scan has been all clear um i have to take uh, um pancreatic enzymes every day with every meal because i only have half a pancreas and your pancreas helps uh break down and absorb mm -hmm. um you know food and nutrients and um and insulin I'm not diabetic. I have no issues with my insulin. So I'm super grateful for that. Um, so other than taking, I've, I've become lactose and gluten intolerant, um, which right. these days it's really not that hard to avoid gluten and avoid <laughs> you know, lactose. Yeah. It really isn't. And yeah. so other than having to take the pancreatic enzymes, I mean, just go live life, yeah. you know, yeah. just go live life, get, keep up with my scans and, yeah. And the doctors have told us with pancreatic cancer, they never, they never actually declare you cancer free or in right. remission because it has such a high reoccurrence rate. So, I mean, we know, I mean, we're, you know, the statistics are right there. 
uh, in front of us, but we're like, you know what? We know the statistics, but the statistics don't factor in God and, and right. prayers. And so right. we're and we're kind of like we're okay with whatever the outcome is. Mm. I mean, that's that's the thing. We we've really you know now that we face we're like we would love to have many many years together. Um, yeah. My parents are both. My parents are like ninety one and eighty eight. So it was for me the hardest part was realizing I could live a long time <laughs> without her. And, right. Exactly. And, and that, that just makes me really sad, you know, but, right. um, yeah, so she needs to stick around. So I won't be <laughs> that's, sad. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, we decided that we're going to retire. We've been praying and praying and, you know, I know Doug's going to talk more about that, but, uh, we decided, yeah, we love Williamsburg. We love the Hampton Roads church. We, we, uh, you know, our kids are in Texas and Florida and they've each moved quite a bit. So we're like, we're just going to go retire and be active part of the, you know, peninsula region of Hampton Roads Church yeah. and uh, enjoy life. Yeah, that's great. I, I bet Ed, Ed Anton is happy that you're there. <laughs> it must yeah. be awesome. Yeah. What a blessing. Okay, let's go ahead and, and change the channel here. Yeah. You've been called the, the quote unquote serve pro couple for your habit of cleaning up church disasters. Now for my international listeners, serve pro is a... Uh, kind of a disaster remediation company. They come in if you flooded your house or your business. Uh, they're like Stanley Steamer. They come in and suck it all out and and repair your facility after a nat- natural disaster or flood or something like that. Can you talk about why? How did you get this moniker? You know, it's actually it's funny. We um, we were in Baltimore and um, uh, we're very good friends, been long-term friends, uh, long-time friends with Keith and Jane West, who were leading the church in Louisville, Kentucky at the time. And uh, the church there was going through a lot of stuff. And so they asked us to come in. And actually, it was one of the brothers in their leadership group that gave us that nickname. He says, he goes, Doug and Jennifer are like the serve pro couple. And, and, and it kind of stuck. Um and so, because we had to come in and, and just straighten out a lot of things. And I think one of the things that, that we learned through this process is in going in these different situations, um, we try and meet with just a lot of different people, um, not just the, 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 the church leader couple, but leadership groups, meet with board members, other key people in the church uh, to really try and figure out what's going on. And um, we we did it in several churches in Ohio before we actually moved to Ohio. Uh, we were actually brought into Cincinnati without getting into a lot of details. There was a very challenging dynamic going on within the ministry staff and the eldership at the time. And we actually were brought in initially just to kind of help out and consult. And through that process, they asked us to, to move in uh, and, and really work with the situation. But I think the biggest thing and that, that we've learned, I think that I've learned is in the past, we would kind of work just through whoever was leading the church. But that's just one perspective. And I think one of the things that we've learned is to get in and, and, and meet and build relationships throughout the church. And actually this last year uh, in our ministry, um, we went, we spent several days with all the other nine churches in the Ohio Valley, in Kentucky, Ohio, and and West Virginia. And we went in and we would literally meet with the church leaders, the leadership group, 
the board, the hope leader, the children's diversity ministry. team, children's ministry, and just spent a whole weekend. We didn't go in to teach or preach. We went in just to observe and listen. And, and we did that. And then we put together kind of a, a, a summary, our observations and recommendations. And then we would actually uh, do a Zoom time with the lead couple and kind of walk through that. Um, but I think the biggest thing I've learned is that you, you got to take time to see the whole thing. It's kind of like, you know, Serve Pro, um, the first thing they do is actually go in and assess. and assess the damage before they start fixing it. And I think that's one of the big things you learn. You've got to really, you got to have, it's funny, you got to have a critical eye without being critical, if that mm -hmm, makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that's hard because sometimes in the ministry, uh, you can see all the problems in your church and then it just brings you down. Right. Um, but if you don't do that, if you're just Mr. Positive and you don't see the problems, then you're not going to be able to address it. So I think just, you know, being willing to, to go in and it also helps having outside eyes. I can't talk right. enough of that. We've been the recipient of having outside eyes come in and look. Yep. And we've also, we did it. I was super grateful. The Cincinnati Church funded us to go and visit these other small churches. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, the, there was no financial uh, burden on the small churches that for this last year, part of our missions budget was to allow us to go and spend this time on all the churches and be able to go in and give them that kind of feedback. Yeah. And uh, I think that's super helpful. These small churches that don't have the resources to bring people in for, for other churches to actually fund that, yeah. uh, to have people be able to go in and just to, to, to bring some eyes in and, and, and give help and support. Right. So. I think just from with Doug, one of his strengths or has become his strength is, and I think this has helped as we've done these tours and as he's given advice is often, especially in a small church, you know, often the, the lead couple is the only ministry staff or sometimes not even both people. Sometimes maybe it's only the, the husband or something. But what Doug has gotten really good at is we, you know, sometimes as a leader, part of our job is we need to see all the problems. You know, I mean, it, it, it's not helpful to just put blinders on and pretend there aren't any problems in your church. But what Doug has gotten really good at is acknowledging, yes, that's a need, or yes, that's a weakness, or yes, that's a challenge. But right now, we either don't have the people or don't have the resources, or we personally don't don't have any more space in our schedule to take that on and all we can do right now is pray about it and be at peace with that yeah. and I think that Doug has gotten so good and and when we went to Cincinnati he you know he was very aware and we became very aware of different things that needed to be strengthened or changed or adjusted and he he's very good at keeping a list of everything that needs to happen but he's become so good at prioritizing, okay, this is what we are going to really focus on right now. And, and I think that's helpful. Like we went into one of the small churches and they said, okay, we're going to have this couple be our teen campus and singles leaders because there's only 10 people in the whole church that fit in those three ministries. And we said, that's, a massive spread and very different needs. And we don't think that's the wisest way to go. You know, right now 
you have two teens. Right. That's not a teen ministry. You need to take care of them or you have one campus student or, you know, so just kind of helping the leaders acknowledge the needs and see the needs and pray about the needs, but not feel like they have to meet every need as if you were a church of 300. So when you bring that up, it makes me think of this last fall when I asked Albert to come in and take a look at our church, get under the hood, dig in, because there were some issues that I was seeing in the church and I knew I needed some help. There's stuff that I felt was just wrong, but couldn't even figure out what it was. I just knew something was going on. I agree with you what you said there. You need an objective eye without a critical heart. And I was nervous about having Al come in because the only times I'd really talked to Al prior to that was when we'd had problems. So I'm like, I bet this guy thinks, you know, the (laughs) absolute worst about me. From a, a leader's spot, oftentimes you're under attack. You've got a few people that just don't like you or are very highly critical of you. And I certainly had that. And plus you're trying to do your best and COVID is making your ministry not perform super highly. And, and then you might not, there's probably things going on in your life. And so anything that you would say to a leader, because I've, I've really been trying to tell other people, Hey, this really helped. It was great. In fact, I just talked to someone last week who's leading a mid-sized church larger than mine. He's having challenges with elder relations. And I'm like, dude, you really need to talk to Al or, you know, now I'm going to tell him to talk, talk to you, Doug and Jennifer, but (laughs) you know, but I think there's hesitation there because it's like, who, what is this going to be one more problem added to my list of, you know, one more person who, who is critical toward my leadership. What, what advice would you give to that person? You know, and, and, and I, I so relate to that because, um, you know, even even with the churches that we went in, we, we've got relationships with all the leaders. We've been with them for years, but there was a nervousness with some of them because we all remember the old days where the guy comes in <laughs> and there's comes in your church and then you're packing your bags. That's right. right. I mean, you're, you're on your way out. Right, right. I mean, so even then, and, and so we had to do all this reassuring like we're coming in to help you and help your church. That's why we're coming in. Um, there was actually one situation where we, we, we came in not even realizing how bad things were, where the couple really needed to come out. It was the best thing for them and right. for the church. And, right. and it's worked out. God's taking care of them. They're in the ministry somewhere else. But um, I, I think you know, maybe because some people have history or they've heard horror stories or it's just your own fear. Like, you know, maybe, maybe nothing's happened to you, but you're just afraid. To me, I would say you've got to care more about your church than about your position. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and and you got to really trust, you know, God's going to take care of you. And and that's one of the things I I believe I, I, God did not promise that the church would take care of us. Right. He promised that he would take care of us. And I think sometimes we get messed up right. because we feel like the church doesn't take care of us. And then we feel like God's not. I'm like, no, God promised he would take care of it. And, and God has always taken care of us, even right. when things haven't been the best with the church. And I, I would just say, you know, gosh, in any, like any other area, if you're struggling spiritually, get somebody in your life. If you're right. having problems in your marriage, right. get a couple in there. If you're right. having a problem with your kids, pull a family in. Right. There's stuff going on in your church. Bring somebody in who can help your church. Right. Um, 
And, 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 and you gotta, you, you have to trust God because if you, if you're going right. to trust in people, there's, there's thousands of reasons why not to trust in people and right. leaders. Right. Well, there's only one reason to trust in God and that's he, that he loves us and wants the best for us. I, that's what I would share. Um, yeah. Put your trust in God. And, and if you really love your church and the people there, get the help you need. Right. And uh, I, I do believe we're in a different era. Right. And I think you could talk to any of the nine church leaders we went into, even the couple that ended up having to come out of the ministry and go somewhere else, they would all say that they felt respected, loved, and helped by our visit. Right. Um, so well, I think I, I, I totally agree with you. And it's funny you brought that up about caring more about the church than your situation, because what was decisive for me in having Al come in is I just reread a book called, I believe it was Good to Great, and by Jim mm-hmm. Collins. And in it, he, he does an exposition of successful corporate leaders. And he said that the, there's usually they're led by a five- five talent leader or a five Sigma leader. I can't remember the designation, but he said the thing that stands out about those people is humility and Mm -hmm. a willingness to place their organization above themselves. And I thought to myself, I thought, you know what? You need to grow in your humility and you need to care more about the state of this church than just your particular situation. So that kind of pushed me over the top. Like, you know, I thought, what kind of leader am I? Am I just concerned about holding on and, uh, staying in an embattled situation, or am I really concerned about the overall health of my congregation? So I think right. that's absolutely critical. Right. One thing that's really impressed me about both of you is that you guys raised money and provided support for small church leaders to go to the CLIMB Small Church Leadership Conference in Dallas. And we ran into each other at Terry uh, Adame's funeral. And you shared that and and people came to the conference and they were so grateful to you guys because you helped them. And I think this goes along with your, your care and concern. Why did you guys do that? You know, we had a, we had a donor that um, had gotten some inheritance money and really wanted to use it to help out the small churches. And so it was kind of like, what, what would be the best way to use this money? And, and, and it, and it clicked like, well, you got you're hosting this conference. It was God's timing. We, totally. we looked we looked at the the amount of money, and literally, it was exactly enough money for each one of the churches to send a couple to the small church conference. And so, you know, the, the donors like, look, you guys, you you figure out what's the best use, and I were like, this is the best use. And so, uh, we uh, we communicated with each one of the churches uh, with with the board president, and we said, you know the donor wants to give this money, but he wants it to be used for this. And they're all like amazing. And, and honestly, for, for us, the reason why we saw this was so important, we've led small churches. Right. And when you're in a small church, you can feel isolated. Um, You can go to conferences and usually the people who speak at the conferences are all big church leaders. That's right. That's right. And so, so, which is great. It's inspiring, but they're not living your world. And the other challenge is when you're a small church, a lot of times you don't have the financial resources to be able to right. go places or bring people in. And so we knew these are churches that don't have extra money. They're, th- these guys want to go. Their churches can't afford it. Oftentimes they're not being paid a lot because they're small churches. They can't afford it out of pocket. And so we're like, this is a great opportunity for them to go to get help, to build relationships with other small church leaders and be able yeah. to, to have a network. 
And, uh, and they were all, I mean, honestly, um, all of them came back saying it was the best conference they'd ever been to. They felt like it was so helpful. The classes, the fellowship, but then the, the relationships and the network that, that has gone on since then. And so we just felt like anything we can do to help small churches, to get them to that conference, for us to go and spend several days there. Um, we've been there. I mean, we, we were on the other end of the world you know, pre, pre-internet, whatever. And so we know what it's like to be isolated and to right. feel alone and feel like, man, the, hello, does anybody even know where I'm here, you know? And, and the fact is, most of our churches are small churches. Right. You know, if, if, if everything we do is geared toward the churches that are 500 and above, that's like, what, maybe 10% of our churches, maybe? Right. Right. And right. so we've got to really focus on those small churches because that's, I, I believe, as we evangelize, that's going to be more and more the story. We're, we're not going to big cities anymore. We're going right. to smaller cities right. and we're going to villages. And so. Absolutely. Right? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the penetration of our churches in the smaller areas is very, very light. I mean, we have some big churches in big cities, which was part of the original plan, but I right. feel like we, we have to get back to what the original plan was is let's, let's get those regional areas completely evangelized, but that's a topic for another uh, discussion, but really impressed me. And I, I say thank you so much for sending th- those people. I really appreciate it. And it was great to have them there in Dallas. That was a great conference. Mm-hmm. Both of your kids are disciples. I I, I talked to Will and, and it was great to, to um, interview him earlier in the, in the episodes. What's helped you to build a spiritual legacy? Can you give us some tips for, for people who are trying to raise spiritual kids? What, what have you done? How, I mean, we, um, so Doug and I had gone through your questions and decided <laughs> I would answer this one. Uh, so uh, some of the listeners may or may not know, yes, our, our son, Will Lambert, is married to Kristen, and they now have two boys. Weston is three, and Mateo is guess, about four months, but we March, April, May, yeah, four and a half months. And um, they lead a region in San Antonio. Will was baptized in Argentina. And then our daughter, Victoria, is married to Adam Henry, and uh, Adam was hired not quite a year ago uh, in Gainesville, Florida, as the worship leader. Wow. I see your guitars <laughs> behind you. We had to marry musical talent into our family. <laughs> so Adam is an amazing musician. He's the worship leader in Gainesville. And uh, Victoria has a master's in special ed. Uh, that's why they were in Nashville for a few years. And uh, she now works for for University of Florida as a um, research associate in special ed and early childhood, and they have a one-year-old. But yeah, when our, I think brief four things that really help is, and that our kids say about us, the first one, our kids say this about us, we're the same at home and at church. There's no difference. We don't have a church persona, even as a church leader, we don't have a church persona and an at-home persona. We're the, we're the same people at home and at church. Um, we are sinners at home and at church. <laughs> we, when we realize our sin, we ask forgiveness, uh, whether it's from our kids or the church or whatever. Um, we have all, we, we laugh about this. We had somebody ask us here in Williamsburg a week ago, Oh, I feel so guilty. I feel so horrible. We're not good at doing family devotionals. How do you do? We just started laughing. We're like, 
we were the worst. I mean, horrible. Like the, you know, plays or songs or, oh, it has to be consistent. We never, we were terrible. We I never could, did. I could write a real short book on the 10 worst family devotions of all time. <laughs> but what we did do is we prayed for our kids all the time that they right. would grow up to be disciples, married disciples. And we prayed with our kids every night, tucking them in at, 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 at night. Of course, we prayed at meals, but we would pray with our kids every night. And um, in our marriage and in our lives, I feel like we have our priorities pretty clear that God is number one. Our marriage is number two. Our kids are number three. The church, both as our job and just as disciples, is number four. And reaching out to the lost is number five. And I think that that is what God is happy with. And Doug has always taken care of me. He is has way higher energy than I do. He's able to handle way more than I can. And he's always been very protective of me. And in, in 2003, not an awesome year to be <laughs> in the full-time ministry. No. I had the special bonus of going through menopause mm. then. And so that was not right. my favorite year. And I remember at one point just coming to Doug and saying, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can do this. And he said, we don't have to, I can go reinstate my law license. We don't have to. And just him saying that like, oh, okay. <laughs> I think I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then I think lastly, I want to say something I think we really had a strong conviction about is we taught our kids how to resolve conflicts um, themselves, you know, whether it was between them as siblings, with friends, as they got older, and even when they became disciples, if they had a challenge with another disciple, if they had a challenge with their discipler, if they had a challenge with a leader, if, if they were in a job and they were having struggles with a boss or roommates in college or as singles and they were having challenges, or now as myriads with spouses, we never intervened for them. You know, we never went and said, hey, stop being mean to my kid in your ministry. I mean, we, just, we never, yeah. ever did that. And uh, I mean, even when, we, when Doug was discipling Will's discipler in, in, uh, in Baltimore, you know, and he'd hear both sides, but he never, he, we didn't intervene. We just, we, we suggested, hey, maybe try this, maybe try this. We'd tell the kids, have you expressed that? Have you said that? Have you gone to them? Have you? And so I think that right. is big. They both are um, very independent, Yeah, very independent, very mature. Yeah. I think another thing, and this was, it's funny, this was shared with us by an elder's wife in Nashville. And she shared that there, there is no law of compensation when raising your kids. And by that, she meant if you neglect your family for the ministry, God will not cover for you. And uh, that really stuck with me because we had seen people neglect their marriage and their family to crank the ministry yeah. with, with terrible consequences. And, and we just decided that, you know, we, we, we weren't going to do that because for me, the, the most important part of being a minister 
for my church is who we are, mm -hmm. like who I am as a man of God, who we are in our marriage and who our family is. And if, 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 if I can do amazing things in the ministry, but I don't have a, a life and a family to back it up, it, I feel like it, it takes away from my, my credibility. And so, right. um, and I, you know, it sounds funny, but I actually wanted my wife uh, to do well spiritually, physically, emotionally. And I wanted my kids to, to become Christians. I mean, it doesn't I, sound I, funny. I that know sounds, sounds good. I mean, but, <laughs> but I, we lived in an era where that wasn't the case where, where it was very much put the ministry above everything. And the, the ministry, I always joke with guys. I said, the ministry, it's a black hole. There's no end to it. Right. No matter, no matter how many hours you put in it, there's always more to do. And so you, you got to have your priorities right from the start because if you're like, well, I'll get to my kids after all the ministry is over, then, then you'll never do it. Yeah. So early in the nineties, we, we witnessed quite a few and it, it was the wives um, were getting, you know, chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia and, and just not doing well. Right. And Doug, I really appreciate Doug and respect Doug. He just decided I want my wife to be with me. I want my wife to do well. And he, he protected me a lot. So there were often things he would do that I wouldn't do, yeah. you know, or I, I wouldn't, wouldn't um, go to. So I yeah. really appreciated that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that it's, it's pretty impressive. I, I, you know, your son wrote a book on, on the mission and it's, it's great that he, you know, your kids are not just churchgoers, but they're, they're passionate disciples. And so that, that says a lot about your example and your leadership. Talking about the early nineties and there was a real kind of a spate of chronic fatigue I remember that. I remember just kind of going, what is going on? Is this like, is it infectious? What's going on? <laughs> it's like, why, is, why are all these women getting sick? Yeah. Um, but I think it, it, it ties back to pressure of the ministry. And I think no matter when, even if it was early in our movement or, or now, ministry is really challenging. And I think you'd yeah. agree with that. I was reading some statistics and it said, according to um, studies by the Alban Institute and Fuller Seminary, 50% of ministers drop out of ministry within the first five years. Many never go back to church again. They don't go to church. I mean, not just ministry, they never go back to church again. And then there's a Duke study that found that 85% of seminary graduates entering the ministry leave within five years and 90% of all pastors will not stay to retirement. So it's like, according to statistics, you know, regardless if you're in the ICOC or any other church, you've got about a 10% chance of finishing your career in yeah. the ministry. Right. I go, that, that, that's sobering, to say the least. Yeah. This study also found that the North Georgia clergy study attrition rate ran as high as 90% for those having served 20 years or more. So you've got early dropouts, and then you've got just over the long haul, people dropping out of the ministry. And um, I find it impressive. You guys have started the ministry, finished in the ministry, retired in the ministry, and are happy, still seemingly happy in spite of le legitimate challenges, health challenges. So I want to ask you, what three things have helped you to, quote unquote, finish the race? 
I'm like, yeah, I have something to right. say too. Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest thing um, for me is to remember that the, the main motivation for me to go in the ministry was, was I wanted to do it for God. And my favorite scripture is 2 Corinthians 5, 14, for Christ's love compels us. Mm -hmm. And I always felt like the ministry was for God. Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to help people and all that, but I also realized that there, there were men in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, others who spent their whole lives ministering to God's people with no results. Mm. And they did it because they love God. And, and that was enough to keep them going. Um, I think the other thing too is we, we really don't believe that the church owes us anything. And um, that, that the promises come from God, not from the church. Um, and it's funny, I went during some during challenging times in the ministry, I always go to this passage, and it's in 2 Corinthians 6, or 2 Corinthians, yeah, 6, where Paul says, Rather, servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love and truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. And I, I, I remind myself that, that's my job description. Mm -hmm. And I've been in the ministry when there's glory and when there's dishonor, when mm -hmm. there's good report and bad report, mm -hmm. when we've been regarded as genuine and as imposters. And I'm like, that's, that's, that's part of the ministry. Right. And uh, if, if, if you're just doing it because it seems like it's a glorious thing um, and, and you're not doing it for God, you're, 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 you're going to get out. I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is we, we really try to have what I call it a sustainable right. ministry life. Right. Um, that, that physically, spiritually, and emotionally, our schedule is something that we can do for the long haul. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that, 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 that we, you know, we, we would look at our lives and okay, we can live this way long-term and then periodically be like, you know what? We can't live this way. We this this things are gotten getting crazy, getting right. out of whack, um, and so that was a big part. Is is kind of you, know, you have to kind of do a little bit of a self assessment of what do I need mm -hmm. to do well spiritually? Right. What do I need to do well physically? And I think something that's real important. What do I need to do to what makes me happy? What do I need to do emotionally? Right. And you know, it's not just you know reading the Bible, and praying. That's a spiritual. There's other spiritual, but um, we have different things that we like to do. And one of the yeah. reasons we retired in Williamsburg, we both love history. We, yeah. we, we immerse it. We love it. I, I love reading about it. That, that recharges me. Right. I get on the treadmill every night uh, and spend an hour on the treadmill, a lot of times watching the history channel. And people think that's the craziest thing. But for me, <laughs> it's like a detox. Right. It, it, it works for me. So right. I think that. 
And then I think the third thing is you've got to have some great long-term friends. Yep. And um, I, I think, you know, because we've moved around a lot, yeah, you build friends in the churches you're in, but you got to have some people that are, are friends that are not circumstantial friends. You know what I mean? Like, right. like right. okay, yeah, I, have, I feel that we're my friends in Cincinnati, but we're not in Cincinnati. And for me, um, I've had to like, kind of re redo friendships, you know, I mean, I, uh, I've had some people that we were friends for a long time and, you know, some of them aren't around anymore or things change, but right now it's Guillermo Dame in San Diego, Doug Arthur in Boston and Keith West in Louisville, Kentucky. Mm. And I always joke, I said, those are three guys that if I ever announced that I was leaving God, <laughs> no matter where they are, no matter what they're doing, they would all fly to where I'm at and they would say, no, you're not. <laughs> They would come to rescue me. And right. uh, Doug and Joyce Arthur, they were there when Jennifer had her surgery. Keith and Jane West, they were there. The only reason Guillermo and Terry weren't there is because of her health issues. Yeah. But um, I think having those friends who who are who've been in the ministry, who've been through the battles, that when you talk, yeah, you speak the same language and yeah. and 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 they can share that burden. And that's that's what keeps me going. And I, and I've always made time for those relationships, whether it's on the phone or, or getting together or meeting. Yeah. Um, because it's funny, just, just spending an hour on the phone with one of those guys. It, it's such a recharge for me. Oh my gosh. It makes all the, I feel like, yeah. you know what? I can go back in the battle. <laughs> I'm not by myself. I've, yeah. I've got right. my friends with me. So I would say those are the three yeah. things I would share. And I, I think as Doug said, um, more often, the like the guys he just described, they probably aren't in your church, in your local church, in a small church, because ministry is a very difficult thing for someone who's never been in the ministry to really understand. Right, right. Uh, we had an interesting experience. Corey and Angela Stuck lead the peninsula region that we're in. And uh, so we they emailed us as new members here. They emailed us the calendar for the rest of the year. And I was like, wow, this is the first time in 33 years that I've gotten a church calendar that I didn't type, you know, or <laughs> I, I, we aren't the ones that came up with it. It's right. like, wow, this is so cool. And, and it, you know, we had an outdoor service. The whole Hampton Roads church had an outdoor door service. And, uh, but the weather was really iffy and it's like, we don't have to make the call of if we're going to have to meet, you know, back in regions right. or if we'll be outside. It's like, wow, this is really cool. Okay. And I, I wrote something, I can send it to you called 20 ministry mom nuggets and just 20 right. little one-liners. I'll email it to you. But a couple things I said there is we aren't God. We never will be God. Our job is to point people to God. No, we we are not God. Another thing I said is being in the ministry, it's it's a gift and it does take a skill set. And it's also a really hard job. And I think just understanding that um, yeah. it is a blessing and a job. And I think for women in particular, every open spot in our schedule or in our calendar does not have to be filled. Just because someone calls and says, 
hey, can I meet with you, right. you know, Friday at 10 a.m. and you look and there is in fact nothing written at Friday at 10 a.m. does not necessarily mean you're free. Right, right. You may yeah. need that to stay sane. Right. That's great, <laughs> great advice. So what you shared is letting Christ's love compel you, keeping yeah. your motivation fresh, not being having false motivations that right. will burn you out. Um, church, having an attitude that the church doesn't owe you anything. I think that's so powerful. You know, I think that's what cre- creates resentment is like, oh, the church didn't give me enough severance or the church didn't give me enough respect or it didn't get this or I didn't get this. Man, that's that's a such a trap. And just having a feeling like, hey, I got paid. I chose to do it. And that's all I, that's all I needed. Right. Well, you know, it's funny. I'll just share, add this, Rob. I, I've actually said it's actually unbiblical to expect God's people to be grateful to you. Hmm. <laughs> not, not unspiritual, but unbiblical because we forget that it was God's people that crucified Jesus. Hmm. We look at Paul and all, I mean, all the grief that people gave Paul from churches that he started. I'm like, okay, Jesus was sin free. Paul was the most amazing Christian of all time. If God's people weren't grateful for them, it's really kind of crazy that in the ministry, we would expect to get different treatment. Right. You look at Moses. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and you just go, you know what? It, it, it comes with the territory. And if, if people are grateful, that's awesome. If they think you're amazing, that's great. But they didn't always treat God's people right. that way. But, but having that expectation, I mean, God's leaders that way. having that expectation that people should appreciate you and, and treat you special that's the source of a lot of unhappiness. And I, I know yeah. I've felt that many, many times. Oh, yeah. yeah. Third, sustainable ministry life. Great, great practical. Just having a life that you can keep doing day in, day out. More like a marathon rather than a sprint. That's a great point. Then right. having great long-term friends. Very powerful. Um, and you shared just understanding your role, that you aren't God. You don't have the solution for everything, but you're going to point people to God. And then understanding ministry is a gift and a job that's, that's really difficult. And it, it is, it is, I think the toughest job that there is. I really do believe that having been in it for a long time is go, it's not easy. And, and anyone who thinks it is, has not been doing it because right. it's, right. they yeah. clearly have not been doing ministry because it's tough. Right. Um, I, I just, I, I want to just ask a few more questions. Cause I, I think I was, I really appreciate the example that you guys have had any advice that you'd give to a church leader that's having conflict with their eldership? I know you guys have had that in your past. I'm not going to bring up specific situations, but that's a common, like sensitive sore spot for many, many churches is, is evangelist elder conflict. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things um, when we, when we came to Cincinnati without getting into specifics, there was, there was an ongoing conflictual situation with the staff and the eldership that, that we came in to help. And uh, one of the reasons that had gone on for so long is they, they had not gotten any outside help. And so I actually came in and said, okay, we're going to work on this for six months in house, but I actually put it in writing, but we all agree that after six months, if we can't figure this thing out among ourselves, mm-hmm that we are going to bring in outside people. And we actually wrote down the names of who it would be. And we will get them 
total authority to ask any or all of us to step down mm-hmm. for the good of the church. Right. And I, and, and I appreciate uh, the men who were the eldest at the time agreeing to that. And, and to their credit, after about six months, uh, they came to me and they said, you know what? We have talked with each other. We feel like the best thing for the church is for us to all step down because of, of the, the dynamics. And it was, I really appreciate it. Amazing hearts that they, mm-hmm. they really love the church more than their position. But I think, you know, we, we all get, you know, it's funny. We get in a place in our marriage where we're stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do we do? We get outside help. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes in our churches, with we, our kids. yeah, we, we, we have this attitude of, especially if there's an eldership, sometimes you have this, well, well, we have an eldership, so we, we should be able to just deal with this ourselves. I'm like, that, that makes no sense. And I think you've got to have the humility as a staff and elders to go like, okay, we, we, need to, we need to bring in others. One of the things before I pointed my, uh, my, the two elders in Cincinnati, uh, Bill Kunis and, and Tony Overstreet, um, I had them going to elder and future elder retreats, going to ACR gatherings. Um, but I wanted them to build relationships with elders in other churches. Mm-hmm. And before I pointed them, I, I felt great about them. The church say felt great, but I asked elders in other churches, okay, you know, these guys, you've been around them. What do you think? I, I, I it was important to me that, that there, there were others who had eyes on it and also that they had relationships with other elders. So that if, if we ever did get in a bump, they had other elders that they could call to get advice from. Mm-hmm. Right. I wanted them great. to have relationships outside of the local situation. Right. I think this whole idea of once you get elders, then you know they can they can somehow figure it all out by themselves. I I, I don't I don't think that's a biblical concept. Right. Um, right. We, so I, I would say in those situations when you're when you're bumping, um, bring 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 some other people in. And don't just bring just don't bring elders in bring bring a team in right bring in you know bring in maybe an elder evangelist or right. elders right. and evangelists to, to come in um because it's look we're people it, it, it's crazy to think that that we're not going to have some situations where we, we we get stuck and we need help exactly exactly yeah. great and advice to so. doug's credit i want to lift him up again that uh what before when when the eldership that was in place stepped down in Cincinnati, we waited quite a while and Doug had to, to begin the process again. And we'd learned from experience, um, as we always say, it's easier to appoint than disappoint. And so, <laughs> and so uh, with, with the, the wisdom we'd learned from mistakes, um, that's a, a key. Learn from your mistakes. Don't repeat them. So when we got to Cincinnati, uh, the eldership stepped down, and then we brought a group of, I think, four couples at the time, and all we we just called it a married helpers group. Just four couples that were going to help us with the marriage. We right. called it a married helpers group. Right. Then about two years after that, we kind of refined it and called it a leadership group. Right. And then, but we never have used the term elders in training. Right. You can really get yourself in a pickle. Right. And uh, and then when we were ready to start the process of elders and we felt we had the candidates, um, we brought Walter and Kim Evans in. They taught the church about what an elder is, what an elder isn't. Um, 
And then what I really appreciated about Doug, Doug was clearly qualified biblically to be an elder. And yet he, and some people ask him, well, what about you? What about you? And of course, there's some wonderful examples of elder evangelists in the Bible and in our movement. But Doug asked a group of about six very mature brothers, two of whom were the future elder candidates, do you think at this time, it would, given what is recent history with an eldership, do you think it would be best for me to just be the evangelist, you know, or might I be considered as one of the elder candidates? And they and he all felt like it would be more powerful to see a positive dynamic between the evangelist and the elders with Doug not being one of the elders. Yeah. And so he, he said, I agree, you know, and he was not going to be considered, you know, didn't choose to be considered yeah. as an elder. And that has proved to be true, the relationship between Doug and our elders. I, I woke up the next morning and did exactly the same thing anyhow, you know. Right. It's like, <laughs> yeah. It's I mean, like, it, look. yeah, it's not going to change yeah. his yeah. job description. <laughs> right, right. Uh, last week I went to, to Georgia for the campus training program and um, there's a lot of great young people. One of the things that I'm noticing as I go to different retreats, there's a shortage of people going into the ministry. There is a huge, people are looking for campus leaders. They're looking for just help in the ministry, looking for people interested in doing ministry. Now this is really different than it was when I was coming out of college in 87. I just, I mean, all my buddies wanted to do ministry. We all right. did. I mean, it seemed like, I mean, that, I know that's yeah. not exactly the case, but if you were coming out of school, you definitely gave it a thought. You're like, okay, this is, yeah. you know, there's a lot of candidates. Now, most of them went on and, and did great careers in, in the secular world. But, um, and I appreciate people like Rusty and Kim Snell, who, uh, yeah. you know, late in their career, they decided he's, he's a product designer. I know he, you know him but um, went back and, and started a new career in the ministry in their, in their 50s or mid-50s, and they're doing a great yeah. job. Love those guys. But um, what advice would you give to a person who's, who's maybe even flirting with the idea of either a paid ministry or maybe self-supporting ministry, leading a church or a small church or a startup? And, and I did, I've done that before. Uh, I'm just talking about spiritual leadership in general. Um, I don't want to end on a negative note because we've talked a lot about some of the ups and downs of ministry. Right. What advice would you give to a person that, that you go, okay, this is the reason why you should, should consider it. You know, I know we've talked about all the challenges of the ministry, but um, it's the most rewarding thing we've ever done. Mm -hmm. And uh, to be able to have planted churches, to be able to have help people become Christians, to, to see people that you help become a Christian as a college student and now to see that their kids becoming disciples, to see people go in the ministry to, to plant churches. I'm like, it's amazing. I mean, I, I would have thoroughly enjoyed being a lawyer, mm -hmm. um, but I have loved the ministry. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I, I share with a group of young college students a while back. I said in 1987, there was a group that went, a group of 13 that went to Argentina, a group of 13 that went to Mexico City, a group of 14 that went to Sao Paulo, Brazil. I said, our dream was that we would to have a church in every country in Latin America. 
And then I got out from Disciples Day and I read through the list of all the churches in Latin America. And, and there's dozens. And I, and I said, 40 people in three cities, most of whom didn't even speak the language, went with a dream. And I said, and God has done more than that. And, and I, because I, I wanted to give them a vision that, you know, that, that, that a small group of people with, with a big dream, God can use it to do amazing things. And I think, um, you know, dreamers need to go into the ministry. That's right. And the dreams are different. Right. You know, you may not get to lead a country now, but, but we, we need people to dream for the, the, the medium-sized cities and the smaller cities right. and the villages. We moved here to Waysburg and we, we talked with the leadership here in Hampton Rose. There, there are 12 people in Waysburg right now in the house church. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no college students at William Mary, but, but we have this dream for our neighborhood. We have a dream of being a mom and dad for the campus ministry at William Mary. We're like, we, we're still dreaming. We still we want to have a dream have that. of a Spanish ministry. Yeah. There's tons of Spanish speakers here. <laughs> we, we, still, we, you know, we still want to have an impact at, at this point in our life. But I would say, man, dream and go for it. And, mm. and you know what? Put your trust in God. Um, God will take care of you. We we came back in two thousand or nineteen ninety three, and literally we had no money and we had no possessions and we had two kids and God has taken care of us. Wow! Uh, yeah. And 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 washed out for us. But um, the world is lost. There are eight billion lost souls. They need to be saved. That's right. And and if. And if you could do the ministry, do the ministry. I felt like, you know what? There are plenty of lawyers out there, um, but I can be part of helping change an entire generation, helping people go to heaven. Yeah. And at, at the end of the day, what, what people need more than anything else, they need salvation. Mm-hmm. There's lots of needs, but what people need is salvation. They need a relationship with God. So I, I would encourage any young people, if you're thinking about it, Man, go for it. Mm-hmm. Give it your heart, um, and 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 be, be willing to go and, and let God take you where you want to be. I mm-hmm. I never, it was never my dream to go to Latin America, for a second, but that's that was God's dream for us, and and it was a great dream. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Jennifer, yep. Jennifer, do you feel the same way? Absolutely, and I, I think I would add to it is. If someone tells you, or if you ask and you are told that you have the skill set for the ministry, because there, there is, it is a skill. There is, a, I think you do need to have the skills. But I frequently, when I meet young people, I'm like, you totally have the skills to be in the ministry. Absolutely. I think really trust that that's, you know, maybe from God or right. God even puts a teeniest idea ask somebody, talk to somebody, find out more about it. And I think, you know, let's just be honest, you're not going to make the money in the ministry that nearly any other, any other career, you're not going to make the money in the ministry. But as Doug said, I mean, we are absolutely perfectly fine financially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, God is always taking care of us financially. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, even most recently, our house sold at the highest price of any house in our subdivision has ever has ever sold for, and uh, it, I mean thirty thousand over our asking price. It was just so God takes care of us in every possible yeah. way. But I think 
if you have this skill set, if you have even the smallest sense of, I think this would be really cool. I think I'd like to be in the ministry. Sit down with somebody in the ministry, talk about it, go to the conferences with that idea, go to some of the, you know, um, classes, listen to Rob Skinner's podcast, (laughs) you know, um, it, it, yeah, it's a desperate need, a desperate need, but yeah, I mean, for, you know, him 40 years, me 33 years, um, in the ministry, there's nothing, absolutely no other career I ever would have wanted. I mean, absolutely no other career. And I, I couldn't be happier that this has been my career. And now, I get to figure out what it looks like to be a retired minister. Right. That's right. That's <laughs> you know, right. I mean, we're super excited. Yeah. yeah. Well, Doug and Jennifer, thank you so much for your time and your devotion to Christ over decades. It's very inspiring. And I'm so grateful for the time to talk to you guys. Thank you. Thank it's you, been Rob. a pleasure. And uh, Jennifer, I'm just praying for a long and healthy life, uh, free from pain and, you know, maybe you, may you live to see your, your, your grandkids' kids, you know? So all the best to you guys in Williamsburg. Thank, Thank you, you so Thank much. You. Thanks a lot. Appreciate- Thank you so much for joining the Rob Skinner Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about it and how to find it. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no-regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.